The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Stock Tech. My name is Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today is Nathan Bell. Good day, Nathan. Morning, Gaurav. And with us also is analyst Nick Cummings. Hey, Nick. Morning, Gaurav. How are you? Not bad, Nick. Thank you. Now, um, gents, end of the financial year, there's a lot of important stuff to discuss today. Probably the most important thing, Nathan, I think we should take this very seriously. <laughs> um, are England the biggest bunch of whingers in world sport? Nathan, you? You know, uh, I actually feel bad because I didn't actually watch any of the cricket, but <laughs> I, I've seen everyone come out since and it's a tough call. I used to work at keeper as well. And just as a wicket keeper, your natural instinct mm. is because often it, it actually is the most, the reason I liked it was my dad was a wicket keeper as well. So I was just following my dad's footsteps, but it's also the spot when you're fielding, it's got the most action. You know, if you're not a bowler and an opening batsman like I was, then you would have just sat in the field all day. It's the boring as. So I just thought with wicket keeping, you're always in it. So your mind's always just ticking over about how you can get more into the action and what you can do. And so to throw the stumps down looked to me that it was instinctive mm -hmm. and he was out. So, you know, is Pat Cummins really going to go, no, nah, no, nah, in the heat of an ashes test, in the heat of the moment when it happened very quickly, it wasn't like he held onto the ball for a long time. You know, is he really going to call it back after that in the heat of the moment when there's so much at stake? I, I wouldn't have thought so. It's so easy to sit here afterwards and go, oh, you know, even um, Pricey, the, the old git on the project, said, oh, at, this is at night time, it's like the night after, said, oh, yeah, I, I changed my mind on this and I think it was unsportsmanlike. I said, well, yeah, you've had 24 hours to sit there and think <laughs> about it and he had a half a second to throw down the stumps, yeah. make a decision when he was all excited about getting a wicket. So I'm, I'm amazed know. at the carry-on. I really am. I, this has become an instant, international incident now. Nick, as a semi-professional sportsman yourself, um, what do you reckon? I thought it was fair play. I've loved the memes coming out afterwards. Yeah, um, I've enjoyed of, that uh, as well. It's been great, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Old footage of Johnny Bairstow doing the same thing practically. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I thought it was play on. Right. Okay. Pod done. Thanks, boys. We'll see you back uh, in, a, in a... No, no. All right. Well, we better talk about something to do with finance. Uh, the other big thing that happened, probably not as big, but the other relatively large thing, Nathan, the ASX, I heard you say in our meeting that the ASX rose something like 14%, including dividends. The figure I saw um, from my software was nine point something percent. So I guess it depends what index you're, you're benchmarking against. But either way, those are extraordinary returns for a year that most people would consider forgettable and where most stocks have actually fallen during the financial year. Yeah, the final figure was 14.8%. So that first figure you quoted was without dividends. And, I see. Okay. And the 14.8 is um, obviously with the big dividends of the iron ore miners in particular and, and the banks, which make up about 40% alone uh, of the index. So 14.8% a year for uh, what, what is a pretty dull index. And I think what's surprising to me is I'll, I was just thinking that because I know in my head, I always know in my head that the iron ore miners are roughly 20% of the index. I know the banks are similar, a bit, a bit lower. Um, you can throw depending on which banks you include and financial institution you include. If you want to go into financials, which all of a sudden that number can go up to 30 or 35 or even 40. 
Uh, the A REITs are another, I think they're at 20% odd. So, you know, CSL, I think is another seven. So there's basically most of the index. So I'm always thinking of the index as a opposition football play, football team. And I, th and I think, you know, what are the good players in the team that I need to beat, you know, each year or over the next decade and which are the players I need to watch out for and where's the weaknesses and what can we exploit and, and also sometimes you just need to, you know, I think this is a real problem for uh, New Zealand fund managers found this out the hard way, but also mm -hmm. US fund managers in particular, and we face it with the iron ore miners is you might not like the biggest stocks in the index, but if they're cheap or they have a big run, so you might pick out a whole bunch of, you know, the, the big tech stocks, uh, big tech companies in the US, for example, if they have a big run and you don't own them, like that really does hurt your performance versus the index. And as an individual, you might not care about that stuff, but as a professional funds manager, like all anyone looks at is the gap between your returns and that index. So any fund manager that tells you that they're index agnostic and don't care about what the index does is, yes, that might be true when they put the portfolio together, but I guarantee you every quarter, every month, every year, they are looking at that number and, and trying to work out how they can beat it. Um, so to get 15% return out of what is a pretty staid index like ours is a huge year and I don't think it necessarily bodes well for future returns um, but it just shows you the power of those dividends and there's a nice segue there into your thoughts on iron ore at the moment Gaurav because a, a big chunk of that return is the iron ore dividends and quite interestingly to me is you, you don't see this very often and that is the brokers are actually forecasting massive cuts in earnings and dividends for the iron ore miners yet they're very scared to actually put a sell on it, even though their target price is lower than the actual share price. Yeah, I just wrote an article about iron ore prices and it was prompted by that very phenomenon that I think it's very clear to everyone now. The big iron ore miners have been quite open with their plans and the investments in capacity have been now put down, made um, and are happening. And it's very clear now that over the next five to six years, there is going to be an epic expansion in iron ore supply. The equity markets are pricing it to some extent, but um, but I, I don't think I don't think falls in iron ore prices are being priced in. And there seems to be reluctance to accept that um, the the decade long average we've had um, of about a hundred bucks a ton is going to fall. And I, and I think that's an inevitability. Iron ore prices are going to fall and fall meaningly, meaningfully. Um, and for some reason, the equity markets are just asleep at the wheel on this. And I, I don't see, I, I can't see that scenario really being priced in. I mean, Fortescue looks cheap, but um, once you start plugging in meaningfully lower iron ore prices and as the spreads on their, on their product in, widen, uh, the, the profit number really does get decimated and that that um, earnings number starts to come back, come down quite quickly. So there is a large and clear negative case for iron ore miners at the moment. And I'm amazed not more is being made of it. So it's an opportunity to still get out of these, um, these heavily exposed uh, businesses. So I, I pointed out um, FMG and Rio in particular, um, Rio is an interesting case because 80% of earnings come from iron ore, but they have a lot of other assets. I just, I'm, I'm decidedly unimpressed with the rest of Rio's portfolio. 
as I am with the management of that business and the direction of that company, I've been a long-term admirer of Rio Tinto. I think for most of my career, it's been the best mining business in the world. But over the last five years or so, it's been a disappointment. I've, I've disagreed with management about the continued investment into Mongolian assets, which I think over time will be shown to be a waste. I think there's already been billions of dollars of write-downs returns on capital have been meaningfully lower than what management has promised. And there's no signs of that really turning around. And yet they keep on throwing billions of dollars into those assets um, to fix the problem. And I don't think that problem is fixable. And then you've got a pool of aluminium assets, which I, I think are probably due another write down after being written down about $20 billion already and uh, uh, persistently um, poor earners um, in terms of return on capital. So with, without iron ore, the rest of the portfolio is is really weak. Um, and that's why I think one ought to be negative on Rio Tinto. It's a strong view out there. And I've seen this a lot because I'm always looking at other income funds to see what they own compared to us. And mm -hmm. um, obviously our funds are always quite different to everyone else's. Um, but I always want to make sure that we're not missing anything or see how we're performing against the more some of the more popular income funds out there. And there's been a view for a while that the iron ore miners are the new banks. And what I mean by that is there was a period up until sort of 2015, I guess, where the banks had had a really strong run where they were paying out these big dividends and you got the capital gains as well. So you're earning you know, returns, total returns in the teens, which for what should be essentially utility businesses that have utility-like returns, which they almost do now, and it's starting very slowly, I think, starting to get priced like that. The iron ore miners essentially took over from them when people realised there was no more growth in the banks and the capital gains were passed. The iron ore miners have, have attracted investors and that's where the big dividends have been and you've got the big capital gains as well. And so my feeling is, you know, obviously particularly based on, on your opinions and, and analysis, is that that's now come to an end and people are, are probably still, I think, particularly in this current environment where basically no one just wants to be in a company that's going to have a profit downgrade and see their share price fall 30 or 40%. So everyone's clamoring into the areas where they think there's going to be no profit downgrades rather than thinking about what are the right businesses that I want to own, even if it's hard to own them because there's a few fleas for the next five or 10 years. And that's what I think is still attracting money into the iron ore miners because we tend to think as the market as this, you know, very smart discounting machine that looks years ahead and incorporates all this current information. But you do see over and over that the, the market is very slow to move sometimes. And that's why I often look at credit markets for signs of, um, you know, stress in businesses or future capital and things like that, because the credit markets do tend to move well ahead of equity markets. And equity markets actually move much slower than you think sometimes because it, it suffers from that hurting behavior I think people are hiding in those iron ore miners like they are with big stocks generally, and that's not where our portfolios are at the moment. Yeah, and I've noticed that as well, that particularly when something changes, um, when a trend changes or when um, when something is, is new, markets really have difficulty pricing that in. An example of that was when the industrialization of China completely upended iron ore economics in the early 2000s. It took years for the market to correctly price in a large new customer of iron ore and the last 10 years have been characterized by 
persistently high iron ore prices, and that's about to change. And again, because we've had this this decade of iron ore stability, uh, I think markets are again struggling to price in a significant change in iron ore markets. Um, Nick, There's also been quite a bit of luck, I think, too, Gaurav, or the Australian miners in particular. You had the problems in Brazil, Brazil safety, yes. and just yes. this huge tonnage come out of the market. Every yeah. time China's growth started to slow, the government just you know forced everyone to lend more money and pump up the economy, and that doesn't seem to be happening at the moment, or certainly nowhere near the degree it has in the past. So that sort of the permanency of those two trends, which are really sort of piled on top of the just the good news of China growing generally over the last ten or twenty years, um, is starting to fade away. Yeah, since 2019, I, I was amazed when I actually looked at the numbers. I mean, everyone knows that there was a, there's been problems in Brazil because of the the 2019 dam collapse. But when I looked at the the actual figures, they they quite shocked me. Um, about 80 million tons has been um, left out of the market, has exited the market from Brazil um, because of that that mining that that dam collapse, and that was a sort of four years ago now. And it has not returned yet, and it's it's only now, probably in the next uh, two years or so, it's going to start coming back with extra additions. So, the market—you're right—the market's been a bit, um, a bit, bit lucky uh, with the absence of that of those very large volumes. Nick, can I just bring you in here for a moment? Um, because the this fifteen percent return—if someone had told you twelve months ago that the, the ASX would generate that kind of return—would it would it have changed? The way you allocated capital over the year? Oh well, absolutely. I would have <laughs> gone all in on the large cap stocks because that's where all the returns are. I mean, uh, Nate was talking about the herding mentality, and it's happening right across the globe. I think eight stocks in the Nasdaq, or sorry, the S and P five hundred, hmm. have accounted for all the year to date gains. So wow. I think Apple, Tesla, Nvidia. Hmm. Nvidia is up almost two hundred percent since november it's now a trillion dollar company <laughs> wow. so more more and more of these returns are coming from a handful of businesses yeah yeah i sent around a graph the other day i don't know if you saw it um breaking down the asx returns by actual mm. market cap and all the returns have come from businesses uh, over a billion dollars in market cap mm. uh under 20 million dollars so the micro caps are down about 50 percent mm. on average or median returns per sector and it was just this, you know, the whole way up as it went, the returns slowly got better until large caps, they kept, became positive. Everywhere, um, everyone else has been smashed. If you've been a small cap or micro cap manager this year, you haven't gone anywhere near 14% returns. Mm. It's been mayhem. It's been a disaster. Um, but that's probably where the opportunities now are. I think the numbers in the big US indexes are actually much higher. I'm not sure what they are, but it's like the NASDAQ up like 35 and the S&P up 20 or something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, they, they were coming off a, a bad 2022, so they're probably down 15 to 20% that year um, or last year. But yeah, that, that, that's probably right. That it's been, it's been crazy. And a lot of the businesses we've looked at in the um, select value fund have taken off and now they were buyers six months ago and now they holds at best. <laughs> yeah, we basically had to completely change the portfolio from sort of 12 months ago when we were first putting it together mm -hmm. and what we were working towards. The um, Talking about that 35% gain on the NASDAQ and the 20% in the S&P, like, you know, they're both starting to get back to, um, you know, their all-time highs, which is just amazing. You've got interest rates 
that are supposed to act like gravity have gone from you know zero to five and, and to four in Australia and I think five in New Zealand and um, you know three in Europe or whatever it is and and it's been so fast and rapid and you just like you just think oh man like surely there's going to be a lot of pain and here we are and it's probably a good lesson in that the market isn't actually the economy mm. uh, I think it's one of the first things you learn when you read all the old Peter Lynch books and the Buffett letters and stuff is that you know GDP or economic growth has nothing to do with share market returns it's all about pricing and profit margins all that sort of stuff and you know here we are and these markets are just up incredibly and you look at the size you know apple the first three trillion dollar business now i remember it wasn't that long ago when you could buy it for 10 times earnings and no one wanted to touch it <laughs> no yeah. one wanted to touch it Nate. <laughs> <laughs> except for smart people whose surname starts with and rhymes with sodi <laughs> um nick so what do you think's happening here it seems to me that um this is really motivated by fear. People are getting scared and just piling into um, big stocks uh, and avoiding, trying in an attempt to try and avoid risk. Is is it is it as simple as that, or is there something else going on? Uh, I think to some degree it is as simple as that. I mean, people are moving more and more towards these resilient businesses and happy to pay higher and higher multiples for it um, mm. uh, for them. Interest rates have risen from zero percent to five percent, you know, in in most developed countries, and yet the S and P five hundred uh, earnings multiple, the average earnings multiple you pay for the index, is around twenty four times. It hasn't changed too much. It's actually probably gone up a point or two, which is which is which is crazy. just insane when you yeah. think about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I think there is a herding mentality going on, and this is, I mean. There's a narrative behind it. The narrative of the last six months is artificial intelligence and those eight stocks I talked about, that they're going to be the key beneficiaries and everyone else is potentially the losers. Uh, so, so there is some sentiment behind it, but I think it's yeah, largely just uh, going for trying to invest in these businesses that are more resilient and where you have more certainty around their earnings growth rather than businesses that may look cheap but could have a profit downgrade coming. Now, we want to um, touch on Microsoft, a stock you've just written about recently. But before that, Nathan, um, there's probably one people wondering when we're about to launch our AI fund. When is that coming out again? <laughs> <laughs> I still find it remarkable that there's a, a bunch of AI ETFs that have come out. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Seems. And this is not new news, but there are more ETFs than there are stocks out there, which mm. just blows my mind. But you talk about this trend toward ETF or index investing. and 12 months ago, you, um, you know, our funds in particular had, a, had an awesome period um, due to your cold picks and, and a bit of cash and some takeovers. We had a really good sort of initial downturn, if you like, where we actually, our, our performance was was massive in, in a couple of funds. And this year, um, you know, there's no way our funds were going to keep up with a 15% annual return and with small caps being as, as decimated as they are. Um, just stop this re-add. Sorry, what was your question? Original question, Gaurav? I had a point to make. The, the AI going. fund. Ah, yeah. Let's get it going. <laughs> so, so there was twelve months ago. You had all these value managers coming out, showing their wherewithal and the patience, and how to you know wait for tough times, and then we'll show you what we can do. And then twelve months later, we're all sitting here going, "Oh, you know, the AI stocks have taken off, and." And the, the ETS and the index have all smashed us again. And it's like anyone who thought, oh, maybe 
you know, it was this the stock the value investors finally had their time to shine. They've just been smashed again by ETS. And I raised like New Zealand fund managers, I think, have have it the worst because if you didn't own zero, I can't remember what the number was. It was something crazy, but it come like was it like half the index or three quarters of the whatever it was. If you didn't own zero, there was you got absolutely wiped out in terms of relative performance for the index. And um, it just shows you that I just think investing is getting tougher and tougher because these technology companies in particular at the moment are getting treated like they're the most stable cash flow businesses in the market. You know, you would never have said that about technology stocks in the past, which would have been your most cyclical businesses. But now that we've shifted to software as a service and and like the good, like you ask our marketing team and ask them what's the last marketing expense that they'll cut if we had to go through a recession and save money and it will be Google. Mm. You know, the Google advertising is the last thing we'll cut. So you can understand why people are gravitating to these businesses, but I can also show you a long list of uh, value fund managers who have been saying for 10 years or more, you know, these businesses can't grow that big, otherwise they'll become bigger than the economy and they're going to slow down at some point. And yet they just keep pouring out these numbers that just continue to surprise. But there is a limit to it. But, you know, all of a sudden you find AI and maybe there's a new leg to it. And you know, maybe the whole AI thing is just a bit more boring and it's a bit more about increasing profit margins and saving some costs, which is where the real winners are rather than necessarily being able to pick the next NVIDIA. But um, it really has been a torrid time for, for, I think, for active value managers. It's, you sort of waited for this long 13, 11-year bull market to end, so you finally had a, a good crack um, at some cheap stocks, and it's just it's like always something comes along to boost prices. And I think it feels a bit like if you're someone trying to wait to get into the housing market in Australia, it's just yeah. at some point you feel like you just got to give up because there's just always something comes along to pump them up further. Yeah, I, I do feel as though investors have been punished for their sense. I mean, the people who have piled into um, lithium and AI have been richly rewarded. And if you're more cautious and sensible, uh, you've gotten squat. Um, now, one um, potential exemption from that, Nick, is is Microsoft, which a lot of sensible investors do own. It's also been caught up into this big um, AI hype cycle. It's a business I personally loathe for the single reason that during its whole, what, 30, 40 years of existence, it's never actually released a decent product. Maybe Excel, I'll give you Excel. Mm -hmm. um, but everything else has either been uh, copied or is an inferior imitation of an existing product. And um, it's the capital allocation strategy makes it's, it's kind of um, uh, random. They just buy lots of stuff and hope some of it works and some of it has worked, most of it hasn't. It's just, I'm, it's a business I really dislike. I'm a big fan of Apple and I like the focus and, and the, uh, the attention to detail that Apple kind of stands for. And Microsoft seems to be the opposite of that. Yeah, this is a business you really like as well. Tell me the, tell me why I'm wrong about Microsoft. Mm -hmm. well, what's great about this business and, and why does it deserve all the praise and attention it's getting? Yeah, well, when I did the research, I was sort of surprised. I always thought of it as this all-powerful company. But when you go back through its history, particularly um, the Steve Barmer years of 2000 to 2013, yeah. I agree with probably everything you said. They released terrible products. They prior um, prioritised Windows over everything else. Mm. Uh, the culture was shocking. Uh, he was dropping zingers like Google's not a real company. Uh, oh, wow. And, I didn't and the that. iPhone. Okay. And the iPhone... <laughs> 
wasn't going to take any significant market share. Yeah, we've all yeah. heard that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and by the time he left in 2013 or early 2014, the iPhone had been out for six years and had more revenue than Microsoft in its entirety. Wow. Which is pretty wow. crazy. And this yeah. shows how out of touch the company was. But I think it has regained its focus under its new chief executive, Satya Nadella. Satya Nadella. Um, he's moved the priorities from Windows to cloud computing and basing everything around the enterprise. So as a consumer, you might actually not like the products, but that sort of doesn't matter. The, the customer for Microsoft is your chief information officer or your chief technology officer at these multinational companies. And Microsoft's one of the only companies that can offer the whole solution. So cloud computing, um, office productivity, uh, like a Dynamics 365, which is kind of like Salesforce, mm. LinkedIn, which may look like a random acquisition. It did, but, to be fair, yeah, yeah. But it's been a home run. Has it um, really? Okay. Yeah. So they, they bought this business for $26 billion. It was yeah. doing $3 billion of revenue. Mm. It'll probably do $15 billion this year. Mm. And it probably has at least, they don't break out its profit margins, but mm. I, I'd assume at least 30 to 40% operating margins. That thing, um, LinkedIn, if, if, if there's one business that I just loathe, which I think is just the worst thing for society, it's got to be Facebook, but after that, it's it's got to be LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Like, I, I cannot stand that product. It is the, the it is a collection of of just uh, of wankers on the online, yeah. and I'm on it, and everyone yeah. I know is on it, but I hate being on it, and it's backslapping professionals. I, I really wish it, it did not exist, and it pains me to hear that it generates so much revenue. Who pays this stuff? I mean, I'm I'm amazed it makes 15 billion in revenue. I really am. Yeah, it's a combination of um, premium subscribers and uh, job ads, um, or, and marketing as well. Just made me feel um, very um, sad, Nick. That is, um, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Go on. Continue. Well, I'm here to, um, dispel your, your, uh, loathe for Microsoft. <laughs> yes, I bring, know. <laughs> bring you back. But, I mean, the other one too is cybersecurity. Like most mm. people wouldn't realize their cybersecurity business does $20 billion in revenue is probably the largest cybersecurity business on earth. Uh, so if you're is that right? Tech, okay, I did not yeah. know that. Really? Okay. Yeah, it's, it grew at around forty percent last year. It's and it's doubled since twenty twenty one. Wow. Uh, sorry, twenty twenty. Um, so it, yeah, it's another tremendous business that most people don't realise is inside this sprawling conglomerate. Uh, but yeah, everything comes back to the to the enterprise and to the customer, um, and they can offer offer a chief technology officer one entire solution. Uh, that makes things simple, reduces costs, and improves security. And that's what what they're after. But they're not after whether uh, you know, yourself likes Excel or Google Worksheets or whether Zoom is better than Teams. Uh, it's it's yeah, it's completely different. That's largely irrelevant. Now I know that that cloud business has been growing. Azure has been growing um, amazingly well, and that actually gets decent reviews from from customers. Where is that the main driver of growth now for Microsoft? Where else does does it get revenue growth from? Uh, it is. Uh, so the, the main drivers, again, are all around the enterprise. So we've got this other segment called personal computing, which pretty much houses anything that doesn't fit the enterprise strategy. There seems to be no cohesive strategy within the division. Um, each, each product sort of operates on its own. So products in there are Xbox, Surface, yeah. Windows, uh, uh, and Bing, 
uh, search it. They're the largest just, ones. If every brand you just mentioned there is crap. Um, Xbox, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Surface, and Bing, each of them is inferior to the um, to the original that they're trying to copy. Yeah, yeah, no, they are. The, what I will say is, the, despite them being crap, the operating earnings of that division have doubled in the last five years from $10 billion to $20 billion. It's a very depressing conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, someone must like them. Wow, um, someone must like them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, you're right, the main drivers are cloud computing through Azure, whether they're the number two player behind Amazon Web Services. Hmm. And we've thrown out some numbers on how big this industry could be. I mean, there's lots of estimates out there, but something like half a trillion dollars by the end of the decade is not out of the question. It's already a $200 billion um, industry. And it's already, at least in Western markets, pretty much an established oligopoly between Google Cloud, Microsoft, and, um, and AWS. Mm -hmm. So that alone for Microsoft could almost, it could be a $150 billion business, I think, by the end of the decade. Uh, wow. And that's on a current revenue base of $200 billion. Um, and then you've got cybersecurity um, dynamics and Office 365, where they raise prices and add a few, you know, new users each year. So there's a credible growth, um, or it's credible to achieve at least 10 to 15% earnings per share growth for the best part of the next decade, I believe. Wow. However, wow. that's a lot of that's in the price. Um, what's know, the what sort of valuation does it? I mean, I know there's not a lot of enthusiasm about it. Is that kind of is that obvious yeah. in the price? Yeah, it's about 33 times earnings, um, okay. which if you assume it keeps its current multiple, then you just get the earnings per share growth, which would be a you know, fantastic return for a quality business like this. But six months ago, it was 22 times, um, mm. yeah, the next 12 months earnings. So uh, that's sort of taken it away from us out of, it probably would have been a buy six months ago, but we're currently sitting on a hold recommendation. I think one of the advantages Microsoft has had is if you go back before these sort of current giants of tech, anytime, I mean, if you read some of those old books about Intel and whatever, if you, and it says something about the difference between the business as well, but if you missed a particular stage of technology advancement, mm. then it probably eliminated your business. You know, IBM's never really recovered for, for decades. Intel's mm. still struggling. Again, different businesses, but the advantage Microsoft has had is it's always just had basically everyone as a customer you know, everyone's touched by a Microsoft product at some point. If, you know, if you work in an office, um, for sure, and it's probably something on your device um, that you use. And so if you happen to miss something, which Microsoft did under Barmer, and probably missed a, a couple of things, major turning points, they actually had the resources and the customers to recover. So they were able to actually invest fairly quickly and, and essentially copycat like you talked about. And actually, it's not always the worst thing to copy. Uh, you know, even though it might be an inferior copy, the fact that you've just happened to have all the customers and they're they're happy enough with it and maybe you get it at a discount um, because you buy other services as well. And so it all gets wrapped up together and, and you don't really expect too much more. You know, you're not expecting an Apple-like product when you buy a Microsoft-like product and it's cheap and it works and everybody can use it and you're sort of used to the format because you've been using their other programs yeah, it's it's a it's a powerful thing, and that's I think that's part of the reason why Microsoft has been able to recapture um, its former glory. But uh, you know, you wonder where the company would be without 
um, you know, the cloud, which was which was really the big thing in terms of just profitability. Mm. And that was a huge turning point, not just for them, but it completely transformed Amazon as well. I think sometimes the thing that gets forgotten about Microsoft is how successful they are as an enterprise sales organization. Mm. I remember reading an article about um, Google Cloud versus Microsoft Cloud and Google engineers were just aghast at Azure. They just thought they had such a a better product, um, you know, generation ahead of where Azure was. And, and and maybe that was true, I don't know, but the engineers themselves were amazed at the Google product, um, uh, disappointed with Azure, but Microsoft had um, an experienced enterprise sales team and they could go around, wear suits, shake hands and speak the language of enterprise. Whereas Google sent out these kids in uh, in shorts and, and sandals and and they just could not get through in terms of relationships um, with their enterprise customers. And they, Google had a um, an enterprise sales problem, whereas Microsoft had decades of experience. And and that is the real reason why Azure is cannibalizing cloud, and why Google Cloud is not is struggling relatively. You know, take trying to take off. And and um, you can replicate that story with pretty much any product. And Microsoft sales team is just um, incredible. Yeah, distribution is, is yeah. definitely key to Microsoft. I mean, they have, I think, over a million resellers and partners across the world. And some of these are quite big businesses. I mean, Dicadata and Data3 that are listed in Australia, mm. we 10 to 15%, I'd guess, of Dicadata's uh, business is Microsoft alone. Mm. So they've created billion-dollar businesses within their, ex within their partnership um, ecosystem. Uh, and so when they have a new product like Azure, they can offer these resellers um, better prices and larger promotional discounts to go and really sell this product and jam it down clients' throats, whereas Google never really had that. It took Amazon years to develop that, but they had a head start on Microsoft of probably about five years. So they were able to sort of get to the uh, number one market share, but Microsoft is quickly catching up. So in the last probably four or five years, it's probably gained five or six points of market share yeah, right, compared yeah. to Amazon Web Services. Yeah, right. um, Amazon hasn't lost any, but Microsoft has been catching up. And can you just run us through, I mean, I've been hearing that the integration of chat GTP inside the Office Suite, it's just getting, that the beta results are getting rave reviews from anyone who's seen it. Is, could that be a game changer for Microsoft? So, I mean, what, what, why even bother to do that? Because who else is there to sell the product to? Um, how how does that benefit in terms of revenue and, and finances for Microsoft? I guess that's the probably the big unknown. I haven't really penciled in anything because it's so hard to predict. I mean, this is, as you said, a, a beta product. Um, so it's called Copilot 365. Copilot, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and this will run pretty much from your emails through Excel, through Word, Teams, um, and even onto the Bing search engine. Mm. Uh, and so it will be pretty much seamless to move information within an um, organization, um, or, or at least more seamless than it is uh, now. Originally, this was launched with OpenAI. So they, they the, um, is the founder of ChatGPT. So they took a 49% stake in that business for, I think, $10 billion. It's incredible. still incredible. Yeah, it's still very murky what the actual relationship is here in terms of Elon Musk, who's actually the founder of OpenAI, says it was a 
set up as what well, was set up as a non-profit business, mm. but now it's a for-profit business. Now Microsoft's a partner. Mm. I think they have the right to earn back their ten billion dollar investment um, mm. through profits, uh, and then they and then the company has a cap profit, and then the rest will be you know uh, I guess non-profit. So it, it's 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 complicated um, exactly what the relationship is going to be. But Microsoft's goal is pretty much to use this, uh, use AI um, to improve the productivity of enterprise. And I think if this goes back to what we were saying earlier, that everything um, at Microsoft revolves around the enterprise. The other thing they've done is launch this counter attack or sorry, direct attack against Google search um, through Bing and that ChatGBT used alongside Bing will be far better than Google search. So. Uh, that was the big question at the start of the year. Google's brought their own products out through BARD, which you can use now in Australia. It's not as good as ChatGBT, but they've promised, I think the Google CEO said that's the Honda Civic and uh, we're about to release the Ferrari. So well, it's, it's still <laughs> it's still up in the air exactly how, how all this plays out. Yeah, fascinating. Okay. Um, and Nath, we don't own Microsoft in the portfolio yet. No, we do. We do. It's not just not cheap enough to make it a buy yet. Okay. okay. Uh, like right. it's, a, it's an incredible business. And a, again, you, you look at these businesses and most of the time they're very highly priced and you think, oh, geez, I'm just never going to get a chance in a business like this. And yet mm. it wasn't that long ago where Microsoft was being absolutely caned by any international fund manager that had to speak on it you know just talked about all the missteps they'd made and mm. all the rest of it but that was the opportunity I, I i think the stock is probably up what 10 or 12 times now mm. um, from that bottom and you're talking about you know john's made his point you know with you two owning apple over the last 10 years or so just one of the most covered stocks on the market bar none mm. and yet you've made you know eight times your money or, or whatever the number is like it's just just because a lot of people covering it doesn't mean their analysis is right and and I'm, and I'm starting to appreciate just more and more. It's mm. not that people are wrong or they're, they're dumb or anything like that. It's just that most people are just operating on a six to 12 month basis. Mm. You know, that really accounts for a lot of the difference between views, I think on stocks. And I'm just seeing some like just complete anomalies in the market at the moment, just really stupid stuff. And, you know, look at a lot of the articles in the Fin review are just about these stocks that, you know, I have no interest in whatsoever. And yet they're, some of them are like, one of them's a $3 billion stock. Uh, I'm not going to name it, but um, I was just looking at a list this morning to see um, that showed some of the best performers in the index this year. Because mm. when I just thought about it in my head, as we did at the beginning of the show, about those sort of major sectors, like none, none of them have been particularly good, except for the iron ore miners have been okay. Um, but there was all these other companies like the lithium businesses and, mm. and the other speculative stuff and other tech companies that were already expensive and then they've doubled. Um, it's again why I just feel like it's just a really difficult market and just shows the age-old quote from Charlie Munger that if you think investing is easy, you're stupid. Yeah, I think a lot of small cap investors get that wrong as well, that, um, that they think you can only find mispricing or opportunity in the absence of other people looking. There has to be there has to be no coverage, it has to be undiscovered. And I've always, I've always, my experience with, with Apple has really informed this view, but I've always thought that that's not true. You know, the, the way the market works is one opinion actually influences another opinion. So the more opinions you get, 
the more views, the more eyeballs you have on a stock, the more opportunity there is for a consensus to build, for herding to happen, and for mispricings to follow. And that's always been my view. I've made far more money out of large, well-covered stocks that are all following a narrative or a story than I have out of some obscure business that no one covers and is technically mispriced. Um, and I just think small cap managers continue to get that wrong. And I think a lot of individual investors underestimate the, what one view or one analyst view does to another analyst view. Um, it's, so it's funny. I, um, it's funny the biases and the reasons we come up with not buying things sometimes. And I'll tell you a quick story. I won't say who it was, but um, a guy who had Apple products everywhere. Like he loved he loved Apple products more than anyone I knew. So he knew the business, and he also knew that the sort of non-traditional parts of uh, Apple was really starting to grow now. So it wasn't just the iPhone, it was just the other bits and pieces. And so this is, we're going back now, this is, I don't know, seven or eight years, maybe when, whenever but Apple was about 10 times earnings, I think it was about mm -hmm. 2015 or somewhere there. Mm -hmm. And everyone was saying, oh, it's gone X growth, you know, classic mm -hmm. quote, X growth. Yeah, yeah. And yet, so, so he knew as an analyst, as a customer, <laughs> as, a fund, as an experienced fund manager, yeah, from yeah. every possible angle, he knew this business and he could see how cheap it was and he just couldn't buy it. And, and I don't actually know why he, he wouldn't buy it, but I don't know whether he just thought it was too easy or too easy. Yeah. a bit like, you know, what's that story where you're a value investor and if there was really $5 on the ground, then... it wouldn't be there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, that's right. So you don't pick it up. Yeah. You know, this is one of those classic situations. So sometimes the value is just staring you at, in the face and you even know it, but you just don't, I don't know, you just don't process it properly or you just don't realize what it could be or, Strange. I remember doing that myself. I remember years ago um, with II, actually, we had upgraded Woolies. It was probably um, 17, 18 bucks. It was when the profit margins had collapsed. Woolies was going through a bit of a funk. The share price had fallen a long way. All of you guys were buying Woolies, but I was sitting there thinking, I don't, I didn't, I don't do this job so I can buy Woolies. I don't want to buy Woolies. And it, and it made a 50, 60% return. You know, I'm just thinking I could have put enormous amounts of money behind that idea. That was a no brainer. And uh, I've, I've never forgotten that lesson. Um, yeah, there's, there's too much pride that can come for, I think, professional investors. And that was prime example of it. Uh, well, at the start of your career where, you know, and particularly our culture at II was like that when we came in. Yes, was that's right. Yeah. The esoteric. Yeah. And you're trying to find the undiscovered and show how clever you are because yeah. you can find the cheap statistical overlooked cigar butt or whatever it is. And then you just look back over the last 15 years and see what's worked. And it's just find the best stuff just that you know we were upgrading um, CSL probably a little bit slow too but Cockley I remember was always there and I'm sure there's a couple of others um, yeah but it's a I'll still I'll always credit you for the um, CSL buy which I made 10 years ago and I still hold today been the 10 bagger for me and I just love that you didn't buy a dollar of it <laughs> <laughs> and I was working for you at the time when I bought it I just think it's hilarious yeah I've told this story many times but I remember sitting there because I was still pretty green then I hadn't been an intelligent investor very long and CSL wasn't talked about in the same way it is today. Mm. And it was going through a tough time and it was, I think it was $33. And I was just looking at this thing going, what, why haven't we upgraded this thing? It's got sort of everything we're looking for. Um, and there was some technical stuff why I thought it was cheap and, but it was different this time. The plasma supply glut, glut uh, wasn't going to last this time because the, the industry had been consolidated. Um, so this thing was on 17 times earnings, which is sort of 17 back then is like 30 today. And, uh, 
and yeah, I, I didn't buy it, but I remember sitting there going, geez, I reckon this stock could get to like $40 in the next two years. <laughs> <laughs> Add a zero onto that. Yeah, then it went back yeah. to 29 and I thought, oh no, I've got it wrong. This is a disaster. And then went to 330 bucks or something. All right, Nick, you got to tell us how dumb you've been with some story because we're feeling a bit, uh, uh, a bit underdone here. Come on. Oh, the, the dumbest thing I've done was in PayPal. I, so it was a successful story to start with. Um, I'd, I'd done all the work on PayPal six months before the pandemic and then the pandemic hit and it's a digital payments business. It's down 40%. I thought the impact wasn't actually going to be that great on the business. So we, um, I recommended to the portfolio manager of my last job that we, we buy it. Uh, and we did, it went up three times. It went from $80 to $300. This is not there. sounding like the kind of story we're uh, here. I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it. I'm All there, right. you know, patting myself on the back. Um, and they, they released this. There was an analyst day and they had these optimistic um, projections of what they're going to do by 2025 and everything seemed cosy and great. Uh, and then they came out, there was a rumor that they were going to buy Pinterest, which was just so far out of left field. Uh, it was, yeah, I was just you know, taken back by the thought they were going to buy a social media company, this beautiful payments business. Um, and they're going into this, you know, crappy industry. They came out and pretty much said after the share price fell 10%, oh no, we've listened to our shareholders. We're not going to do that. But that was the key that growth in that business had pretty much flatlined. So e-commerce growth right. had stopped by the end of 2021 or slowed down dramatically. And I just always remember thinking or thinking back to it and going, I, I knew everything about that stock. Um, I knew there was competitive threats and I knew that that was probably a signal, but for whatever reason, I just was hanging on to this winner and hung on and hung on. And it's, I think it's now at sixty dollars. So that's gone. painful. When you see yeah. your gains um, evaporate, yeah. that's probably worse than yeah. than sitting on losses. I reckon that's that's awful. And this is not a small business either. This, I mean, uh, I guess to highlight how crazy it got, PayPal was worth more than Mastercard at one point in twenty twenty. Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Actually. And now it's you know worth a fifth of Mastercard. <laughs> Astonishing. Yeah. I've got one more quick funny story for you and maybe we can finish up on this. Yeah. And uh, a friend of mine told me the story when uh, he first started out at a, a well-known growth fund manager. Um, so I'm guessing this was probably 20, 25 years ago. And he told his boss uh, that uh, Fish and Pock or Healthcare were just selling fancy vacuum cleaners. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there was no way that this this company was going to earn excess returns. I think it's up over a hundred times since then. Wow, I, I, that's a, that is an embarrassing story. So I'm you got to tell me who that is later on. <laughs> off air, definitely off air. <laughs> that's got another classic too with Main Freight, which uh, yeah. I don't think he got the analysis wrong, but he owned really really early. And again, I think he owned it for like went up two or three times and thought he'd done fantastic. And then I think it went up another 70 times or something. Wow. Incredible. That is actually, that that deserves um, a story and a write-up. Like Main Freight is one of the most amazing businesses to come from this part of the world. Mm, the wish is our command or Nick's command. Yeah. Nick's, yeah. Yep, yep, that'd be awesome. I'd love to read that. Yeah. That'd be Stay tuned. <laughs> There's a good book on Main Freight as well, which I believe I'm supposed to borrow from you at some point, Nick. Uh, yeah, this one here that's no plug i've just got it yep yep <laughs> yeah. i'd love to get that off you next time i see you that'd be good yeah ready fire aim it's it's brilliant um now we're forgetting we're actually on a podcast so we better we actually roll up and 
that might be it for today. But um, we've committed to doing this fortnightly. This is the first of um, of that commitment. We'll be back in two weeks. So stick around. Nath, thanks very much for your time today. Uh, thanks for doing it while you're under the weather, mate. Much appreciated. Yeah, not feeling 100% today, but um, we'll, we'll get back shortly. We'll be better for next time. Nick, thanks for your time as well. Thanks very much. And for everyone else, thank you for listening.